0: Welcome to Game Brain, a board game podcast about our gaming group. I'm one of your hosts, Matthew Robinson, and Tom is off this week uh, working on next week's Matt joke to open the show. (laughs) Let's all wish him good luck and hope that he stays consistent with those hilarious jokes. This week's I'm so happy to be joined by the designer, Trey Alsup. Trey, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here. Today we are reviewing the classic, classic Mac Gertz game from 2013, Concordia. And our topic today is uh, going under the title of deck building. But Trey, you want to give us a quick uh, elevator pitch for this one? Yeah, I am guess we're just going to look at deck building or the distinctions
1: between deck building, deck construction, hand management, card drafting, Um You know, kind of these are overlapping concepts in game design, but they have really different effects on the way that games actually play out. And it all sprang out of a uh, just kind of like your own review of Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion with Jesse a few weeks ago and looking at the way that Gloomhaven was handling randomness and different aspects of how you actually play that game.
0: I love it. Well, I've spent years wanting to hear your thoughts on Gloomhaven and get into that. So that that is very exciting. I haven't had any
1: thoughts on Gloomhaven until recently. So
0: exactly, that's that's, that's why I'm excited. Um, how have you been, Trey? Have uh, give us a little check in since your since your last uh, episode. You've had quite a uh, an excursion, I, I believe. Right. That's right. I went and um, spent uh, two months in Texas, and I am back in.
1: Los Angeles now. It seemed like the pandemic was a good time to go and, and spend time with uh my parents and see uh my best friend from high school. Um, play some play some uh, Gloomhaven jaws of the lion with him. So, but I am back and I'm I'm ready to make up for my deficit in nerding. There was still some nerding that went on in Texas, but it was definitely dialed back. And now I have and to And you
0: uh you drove from LA to Texas? Yes. I was thinking what's a, that that was going a half cross country drive like in the pandemic
1: um wasn't that different? um I actually just spent a lot of time in your car uh it was an interesting drive back because I came back on the Saturday uh week ago Saturday, and that seemed to be one day where there were specifically a number of kind of like trump car parades mm. as i was driving through the hill country of texas west of austin there certainly were there were there were massive displays of pickup trucks and and flags and so it
0: was it was interesting to see the uh the and urban they're out rural there to Dubai. make you feel good you know i mean they're not there at all to intimidate or to try to terrify you or <laughs> in some way insinuate a underlying level of violence against you and your loved ones Absolutely. Wonderful for them. Um, hopefully that all ends in a couple of days. It, it is uh, it's a really important thing though, to like, see, like being in Texas, like Texas
1: could is a purple state now, or it's close to being a purple state and there is might
0: be a blue in three days. Trey might
1: be a blue, might, might be, but just, there is a huge, like there, there aren't red States and blue States anyway. They're like, when you go from Austin to the, you know, you know, 10 miles out of Austin, things change dramatically. So even in Texas, like cities are blue and
0: the rural areas are red. And that's probably true of California, too. So. Yeah. No, So Cities and rural, that's really the divide, right? Yep. Um, let's have this next 90 minutes be our 190 minutes of the entire week that is not going to be utterly consumed with the nightmare that is our impending election. What do you say? <laughs> it's my fault. I brought it up. This let's time. hope it's not a nightmare. Let's try. I'm um, for well, I'm glad that you're back. I'm glad that you had a uh, some quality time with your family and a little bit of nerding. What do you say we get into this week's game night? Since we no longer have in-person weekly game nights, this segment has sort of become, uh, at least for Tom and I, what we have played in the last week or two. But for our uh, co host joining us, I'm curious, you know, yes, what you've played this week, but any highlights in your gaming that you may have done that you want to talk about since your last episode?
1: Um, well, you know, this week um, my over, I'm going to overlap with you because we played uh, Concordia. I got pl- a couple of plays of that. I'm probably, I would guess, it over 30 or 40 plays of sure. Concordia. We got to try out uh Viscounts of the West Kingdom. I don't know if you got
0: more than one play of that. I, uh, I got one play with you and then one solo play.
1: Gotcha. And then so the big thing, like since we have a broader range of game nights right now, definitely like my game night of the past few weeks was like a week of intense gloomhaven jaws of the lion in which i probably played 15 or 16 scenarios
0: oh wow so almost the whole thing or you know well over the halfway mark at least i would say over the halfway mark we were level six we're we're at level six was where we paused so got it um Let's see what have I played this week. I played, of course, Concordia. I've played Viscount of the West Kingdom, which we'll we'll get into a little more in Games on the Brain. Um, I had a lovely game of Anno eighteen hundred with Jennifer, who um, was nice enough to teach me this. This is the new Martin Wallace game, Um, and I am pretty down for it. Um, We only played one game, and we were we were you know Jennifer had played it before, but we were still sort of making our way through the rules and learning things, and it definitely has and uh, and a, a through the ages vibe um it's sort of a tech tree the game which which is sort of you know what i would describe uh through the ages at to a certain extent um but it's not card based it's cube well remember based. Jennifer started off by being one of the co-designers on advanced civilization which is definitely exactly. a
1: tech tree Kind of game. Now, so, what's the distinction here? So There's an Anno 1800 board game now. I know Jennifer is a big champion of like a vid- the video game, right?
0: Yeah, there's a there's a whole franchise of the Anno franchise, which is uh you know city building, um sort of resource, uh production line queuing up like for I have to build sort of like Starcraft I have to build the wood and the iron if I want to build the barracks and I need the barracks to build the armory and I need the armory to build the science lab and you know things like that mm-hmm. um there's definitely you know I got to send my workers out to to keep getting wood and keep getting iron and then building up you know so the board game definitely has that feel where you're creating um you, you're buying from a giant tableau of tiles and you need one tile to build another tile. And it's all about fulfilling sort of these character orders that you have in your hand, all these different characters who want things from you. Um, and so you're trying to fulfill those orders. But the fun thing is there's a whole trading element because I can't, there's no way I can build everything. In fact, you're limited by the amount of buildings you can build. You only have a certain size tableau. Um, so, you know, I'm watching what Jennifer's building. She's watching what I'm building. And one of the resources in the game is is, is sort of a trade Tile that you that you that you only get uh, every round. You have to sort of refresh in order to get them back, and so it definitely feels interactive in that sense. While it's completely multiplayer solitaire in that I, there's I can't block you, I can't do anything. But what I buy and what you buy and the ability that we trade between each other is completely there's just there's no way I can fulfill all my orders on my own. So there's 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 wheeling and dealing that has to be done. Um, well, you had me at Martin think, Wallace, so I'm I'm really yeah. Concerned. It's super interesting. And I think we'll, I, I think definitely two player would probably not be the ideal player count for a game with heavy trading. Sure. Um, but, uh, <laughs> right. but yeah, excited to try it again. Um, yeah, I got my whole Garfield Garfield Games stack this week, which includes Viscounts of the West Kingdom and um, Raiders of Scythia, which is sort of their 2.0 version of um, uh, Raiders of the North Sea, which we've, we've played a bit on the app, which I think is really a fun game. Um, but yeah, we can get into that more in Games on the Brain. But I have played Raiders of Scythia solo a bit, and it's uh it is very interesting. But yeah, we can get into that during Games on the Brain. Let us move into the news. Good evening, Mr. Mister All and Let's go to press. Cloud. the news. First up, we've got some crossover sort of video game tabletop uh, role playing entering into the board gaming world. Uh, Two major brands in the nerdery world, Critical Role and Blizzard, have both announced that they are creating their own, uh, what would we call it, a publishing house? Yeah. Yeah. They're creating their own their line of board games, their own press. Yeah. So, Critical Role, if uh, you don't know them, they are sort of the kings and queens of um, Dungeons and Dragons, the podcast, right? I mean, it's or Twitch, or, Twitch guess, streaming, yeah. Twitch streaming. Yeah. So people love following their exploits on role playing and they are all uh, little uh, tabletop. It's a big thing. Yeah. It's a big thing. They're all celebrities. And they're in their expanding own the hobby.
1: Like Critical Role has been great at bringing new people into, the, into Dungeons and Dragons and the role playing game hobby in general.
0: So they have their own line of board games coming out. Trey, did you look at any of these that they've announced?
1: Uh, I saw the one, which is what? I don't know how to pronounce this. Ukatoa.
0: I'll go. Yeah. Yeah. And three uh, to five players from Jeb Havens and Gabriel Hicks. If you're a critical role fan, you probably know who those people are Uh, a tactical semi-cooperative game. Okay. Okay. I mean, you know, take a look. It's, it's always interesting when we can bring new people into our hobby and they are definitely a brand name. Um, yeah, I see it
1: kind of being in the vein of, like, the Kickstarterization of the industry where, like, Critical is big enough now that they can kind of do their own thing and they don't need to go to other publishers in order to get their content out and kind of go direct to consumers, right? right.
0: Um, they're calling it Darrington Press or Darrington Press. I'm not sure. I guess Darrington, um, which I'm surprised they didn't just call it, like, Critical Role. Maybe there's some yeah. licensing issues there, but – right. But uh, yeah, Darrington Press is the critical role board gaming line. Uh, Blizzard, known for the video games that you love, uh, you being anyone who's listening, I would imagine, uh, they have a uh, similar thing. They, a former vice president of Blizzard, uh, along with some other high level people there, have started War Chief Gaming, which is their own line of board games. They have yet to announce anything specific. Yet, but um, you know, it's been fun watching Riot do this. They were sort of the first Mm -hmm. in the gate uh, with mechs versus minions, and they released that small, strange bluffing game recently. Um, but yeah, always interested. I mean, I, I, few licenses get me more excited just on its own than Blizzard licenses. I'm, I'm just a fanboy of everything that they've ever made for the most part, as I've, I've had a massive obsession with. So any good board game with a skin of one of those worlds that I love um, will be interesting to me as long as it's halfway decent, probably. So yeah, give me a Hearthstone game and I'll, I'll probably buy it, sadly. <laughs> um, let's see, next up, uh, in Big board gaming news this week. We have uh, two big pre-orders that are available right now to order. Wingspan Oceania, which is the third expansion for Wingspan. This one focuses on uh, the birds of Australia and New Zealand. Um, It is available for pre-order right now from Stonemaier Games, as well as your friendly local game shop. It is apparently shipping in November or December. Um, comes with 95 new bird cards. That's a lot of new bird cards. For me, the more exciting part is the four new goal tiles. I always like those, and the five new bonus cards. There's a new resource for the first time ever, Nectar, adding to the resources we have there. Um, It also comes with uh, new dice as well, because you'll need new dice that have the Nectar symbol on them. So I think you'll be replacing your dice from before. Um, And a whole bunch of new Automa cards, which is always good for me, because I like to play that game solo. If you are a Wingspan fan, head over there and check that out. Uh, The other exciting pre-order for me this week is Doom Imperium. Um, I have now read the rulebook, which they put up online, and it sounds interesting. I I did pre-order the base game. They have two things available. You can get the $55 base game or cheaper if you can find it at an online gaming shop. I order directly from direwolf.com. Uh, digital which is the publisher uh, and then for another 55 or so dollars you can get a box of plastic minis to replace the wooden cubes um, so, so, so i don't know what this is this is not the dune board game no so and this, this is, is not
1: and this is not imperial
0: this nope. is something else this so this is the dune license from the vi- from the new movie which was supposed to come out before the board game and which is now coming out a year after the release of the board game. Uh, All of the art in the board game is inspired by um, the actors and art of the movie, and it is a worker placement deck building game. So this is sort of a genre that is going to, at least in terms of two big games coming out this year, be a sort of a defining uh, genre of game right now. So we've got... um, Oh, God, I'm forgetting the name right now. Uh, Something Arnak, I'm looking it up really quick. I have pre-ordered it as well. Uh, It is The Lost Ruins of Arnak, and Doom Imperium are both deck-building worker placement games. So literally what that sounds like is you're placing workers out on the board, and some of those spaces will get you new cards that you add to your discard pile that get reshuffled back into your deck, and the actions you take are the cards that you draw. Um, I would say Dune Imperium, After I've read the rulebooks of both now, Dune Imperium seems quite a bit heavier then mm-hmm. Lost Runes of Arnak, um, there's more asymmetrical powers. Of course, there's all of the usual factions you would imagine in Dune, Harkonnens and Bene Gesserits and Atreides. Um, and it seems uh, this one seems interesting to me. Look, I'm a I'm a massive sucker for Dune. I, I'm pretty much if it's not if it's not Dune Munchkin, I'm probably going <laughs> to buy it. You know, like if it's a halfway decent game, I I will give it a whirl because I just I can get in the IP and get. Uh, enjoying it so easily, just from the world, um, One thing I notice about this like with is that there's no map like this is not this is not a dude's on the map game i don 't think no no you are you are, there are conflict cubes and worker placement spots, and so there 's a whole conflict round that happens, and you're playing cards to put a certain amount of cubes in to decide how many of your cubes are going to be fighting sort of influence that you have in the you know quote unquote war this round. Um, and so there's that going on. There's also, you're trying to get the influence of the different factions. Um, you're going to locations to get the resources you need to buy new cards that will make your actions better. And I, am you know, I'm super into it, interested. I've also pre-ordered, um, uh, <laughs> this name does not stick with me. Lost ruins of Arnak. I've also pre-ordered that, which is, is, is also a just straight up worker placement deck building game. Um, and they both, uh, or at least Lost in to plays solo, which is why I've been interested in. It. It's supposed to be very good solo. So yeah, those are two uh, deck building worker placement games. Um, Dune Imperium is available I'm for pre-order right it now. It. I don't know exactly what that
1: means. Like, I'm curious to see what that means, a worker placement deck building game. Because that doesn't naturally fit in my brain of what I expect gameplay to be.
0: Right. Well, Legends of Arnak, it's simply like you have a deck, let's say you have a deck of 10 cards at the beginning of the game. Everybody has the same deck. You draw five. Each one of those cards are actions. So like you take your turn, you play one action. Um, That action could be to get some resources, get some stuff. And then you're also trying to go to locations. And a lot of those locations are going to need certain cards in order to get there. So if I want to go to this spot, I need a Jeep card, which in order to thematically drive to that location. And then I may encounter a monster at that location. And I, I better have a couple combat cards in my hand if I want to be able to take it out. But then, it, you know, I can also go to the market and buy better combat cards or better Jeep cards or whatever I might need to help me, you know, be able to go farther and open up more locations in the worker placement board. That's at least how uh, legends of Arnak works.
1: Okay. I'm curious to see how that works or, or at least Most we're falls we're into like our, our deck building dis- discussion
0: later. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, both of these um, should deliver by the end of the year. So um, hopefully someone will put them online so we can actually try them together. Uh, Kickstarter news this week. The big Kickstarter going on right now is a game called Endless Winter Paleo Americas. Um, It is interesting for a handful of reasons. The artist of the game is uh, Mihalo Dimitrovskiy. Um, And that is uh, the artist of all the Garfield Garfield Games games, uh, such as uh, Architects of the West Kingdom and um, uh, Raiders of the North Sea and et cetera. It's a very distinctive art style. Um, And it has a handful of uh, well-known designers on it as well. Stan Kordonsky, who did dice hospital and rurik and johnny pack known for sierra west and coloma as well as drake villario who i believe this is uh their first game um i thought i saw that these were from these designers were from cyprus is that correct that's well johnny pack's from america so okay so no um but yeah it looks interesting um I definitely think it is oh, the publisher worth, is
1: Okay. The publisher. Is. Yeah.
0: Okay. The pub. So yeah. So Johnny pack is working then with the publisher of this, um, but it is funded and doing quite well on Kickstarter. Um, I'm trying to find the link to it right now. So I could give you a little information on it. Um, my link is not working, um, but it is a, a one to four player game, 50 to 90 minutes. And uh, area majority deck, uh, deck bag or pool building, modular board, hand management. Um, yeah, check it out. It, uh, yeah, not th- I think it's I can't think of another publishing company from Greece. So that's interesting. The art is gorgeous, as you would imagine, from the artist. Well, this is um, Fantasia Games, and they're from Cyprus. And it's their first game. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, could be interesting. Uh, check that out if you're interested. Last bit of news. Um. And this is mostly exciting for me. I don't know if I'll ever get to play it, but I really want to play the Alien RPG. (laughs) Uh, It has blown up the RPG world. It won all the awards last year. It did really, really, really well. Um, And it is now playable on Roll20. If you don't know what Roll20 is, it's basically tabletop simulator for RPGs. Um, But I think you have to pay a little money to use it. Um,
1: But it's good. It, It has video support. It's a great platform.
0: Yeah. So I would love to play Alien RPG and a, an alien RPG is interesting because it it can either be a campaign or sort of a one night. Uh, role-playing thing. So I would love if we could one day or one night put that together. I think that'd be really fun. Um, Lastly, Tom mentioned last week that the Charles S. Robert Awards, uh, which is sort of the Oscars of war games in the board game world, was about to announce their 2019 winners. We have those winners now. Um, There are a lot of awards here. So if you go to charlieawards.wordpress.com, you can see all of them. But the most interesting here to me is uh, a wonderful Wargame Euro hybrid from last year, which won a whole ton of awards here, which is Nevsky, Teutons, and Russ in Collision 1240 to 1242. Um, Volko Runke is the designer of that, who uh, was the beginner of the Coin series, as well as Labyrinth, a fantastic designer. I think Nevsky is fantastic and very interesting um, and worth looking into. And it was nice to see it get. It's beautiful uh, game. It's great looking. Gorgeous. The art is gorgeous. The game and the game is it's one of those games that when you you first learn it and you go, uh, there's nothing that feels like this. It's and it's rare for me, you know, in my 11th year now in 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 the hobby to play a game that literally feels like nothing I've ever played before. So, um, hats off to uh, Volka for that. And and it is a. uh, series, just like coin. And the next one I think is coming, you know, in the next six months or so, which is interesting. Well, t- you've played it, right? So it's, it's kind of one of these games that has the opportunity of kind of crossing over between the war gaming world and the board game world. Yeah. Right? Much like coin. Exactly. Yeah. It is. It is a war game where the only part of war that you are focused on is supply lines. It is a game of making sure that you have direct supply lines at all time, uh, in order to keep your conquest going, um, and yeah, it's very much resource management, and uh, n- all of your mercenaries are um, uh, paid for hire, and they're they're all on a timer, and after a certain amount of time, uh, they'll leave you because you only paid them for a certain amount of time, so you have to time your campaigns out in a certain number of rounds and make sure that you achieve your goals by then because your whole army just disappears on, you know, the first of November. So you better have done something by then. Um, it's, there's a lot of really interesting, cool stuff happening there. Um, and yeah, like, you know, like coin games, there's a lot of card play going on as well. And it's one of those games where you, you sort of need to know the available cards that you and your opponent who are playing sort of asymmetrical decks have. Um, but yeah, very heavy. I mean, Four, 4.3, 4.5 weight, I'd put it at, Ooh. um, really <laughs> heavy, Very, like, like, like playing coin with the AI heavy, like <laughs> a lot going on. Um, but also just one of those things that's like hard to grok because there's, you don't have any, uh, comfortable footing. You're not like, oh, okay. I know this mechanic. Every mechanic is like, what? Explain that again. Um, but yeah, Nevsky is totally worth looking into. Um,
1: and I had one bit of news news here. Oh yes, go ahead. Yes, please. I just, in, in my preparation for doing the Concordia review today, I clicked on designer Mac Gertz and saw that, uh, he is working on transatlantic two, which I, I'm not sure whether like this is a sequel or it's a reworking of transatlantic, which is a game that, you know, you and I played at Essen, uh, three years ago. And I liked it quite a bit but it didn't didn't seem to break out um and so anyway you can go and check out transatlantic 2 on bgg and it looks like the change that the designer has made is to add a kind of map of the world to it so that the game in a sense becomes less abstract and a little more uh map based in terms of shipping lines and stuff but I, i thought this was a very good game um that maybe is a little bit like, uh, automobile Mm -hmm. kind of a good, good, you know, comparison there, which is automobile's bills, Martin Wallace. Right. Yeah. And, um, Let's hope we're right about that. Um, but yeah, like it's kind of abstract in terms of what you're doing and maybe it needed to be a little bit more concrete in terms of, you know, doing shipping lines across the Atlantic Ocean or something like that. But uh, I'm a, I'm a Matt Gertz fan, so I'm interested to see this reworking of what I thought was already a, a pretty good game.
0: Yeah, I really like <laughs> Transatlantic. I, I sold it purely because there was just no enthusiasm for it in our group. Um and it seems which is to be weird, one of those games. right? Like why we you know, it is one of those things of like why do some certain games stick and what other I think games it's are a like- tough teach. I think it's one of those games that it just it really it, it even took us a while to sort of wrap our brains around it and the rule book, which we'll all, we'll talk about Matt Gert's rule books today. The rule book was <laughs> awful and genuinely didn't explain major important mechanics within the game that we had to rely on uh to explain to us. Um which is a shame yeah.
1: because it's a, I thought it was a pretty elegant game. So it should have been yeah. a pretty straightforward teach. But yeah, mate, let's revisit that in Concordia.
0: Yeah. And I, and transatlantic two for me would be an instant buy because even though I sold the first one, I liked it a lot. And just, it was one, of, it's like dominant species Marine. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah. If, if this solves all my problems from it, it could be a grail game for me, you know, mm-hmm. could be like totally awesome. Um, all right, let's move on to the eight by eight challenge. We played Concordia a bunch of times. That's on the challenge. At least I'm pretty sure it is right. <laughs> Last I checked. Sure. Uh, so yeah, that counts. Good for us. Shall we move on to our review tray? I think we should go to games on the brain. We should go to games on the brain. That's why you're here, Trey. Thank you so much. People say you sometimes have baby brain. Uh, I have election brain right now. Just fight or You've flight, mushy brain. Yeah, I've got baby brain and election brain. What's on your brain these days, Trey? Um, so in addition to the
1: games we played, um, a little bit on my brain is Among Us. Uh, I, uh, I've had a number of friends that have started playing that, but I really wasn't able to while I was in Texas. So I'm eager to get back on that. And like, it's a weird thing that like Among Us has become this huge phenomenon. And I feel like our group has been playing these types of games for years. And so it's interesting to see like a lot of the things that we like, or at least maybe not you, Matt but the the rest of us or a lot of us in the game brain world love about like Avalon. It's now taken over and become a mainstream thing. So that like AOC playing among us is a thing.
0: Yeah. That's- I mean, it's a good thing for our hobby. I, 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 tried out among us. I played it twice. Um, I went, I don't ever want to play that again, but I, yeah, it's not your thing really. It, it probably is not your thing at all. Well, but also like maybe it's fun with a bunch of friends. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want to play that with randoms. Absolutely. No, I played it with randos and it's like, I don't know what the game is here. There's no, there's nothing. There's no, game. no, no, no. You need to know the people you need to be in voice chat. You need yeah. to be like, you know, yeah. My can be Dimitri, you know,
1: means he's acting suspicious, you know, that it's, it's a, it's totally a social game. So, yeah.
0: And I, and I love that board game mechanics that we've been playing for, you know, 15 years are slowly trickling into, uh, the video game world. I think that's very cool. I mean, they just found out about deck building a couple of years ago with Slay the <laughs> Spire. So now they're finding out about hitter, hidden trader mechanics. And, you know, I mean, just, you know, I don't know, Trey, figure out a mechanic that the video game world hasn't caught onto yet and make a billion dollars. So the other thing on my brain has been
1: uh, remote role playing. Like we've talked about this a little bit before, but like in the pandemic, we can't get together in person. And so like all of the games that, a lot of the games that i'd like to play there are not board games um have had to move to online platforms they've had to move to zoom they've had to move to to discord um you know like i'm involved with a boffer larp out here in california that's had to go completely online uh that's called apocalypse 47 and we've been playing that online with all the struggles involved and then like my week this week was involved with running uh some games on friday night for halloween of a LARP called toil and trouble by Kristen Hendricks and Warren Tusk. And that worked really, really well because it's a game that's only for six people and you could kind of go into discord and create rooms so that people could have individual conversations. Cause like the big problem with a lot of games that you put on zoom is that, like once you get above three or four people in a single channel, it's uncomfortable trying to actually have a, a conversation. And, uh, so I've been working with me because people are like talking over each other. or Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's even like it's the same reason that when you're at Thanksgiving dinner, if you have more than four people at the table, inevitably the conversation will split and you'll start having multiple conversations at the table. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just like human beings start to get very anxious and it's hard to have conversations of more than four people involved at the same time. And right like that's a, that's a thing. And the tech of being online needs to address that in, in ways that allow people to have organic conversations where like, I'm done talking to Matt. Now I want to go talk to Dimitri as unlikely as, as that seems. And we're not just, you know, 20 people dumped into a single channel. So I've been really look cause especially cause this is my field is designing, you know, ro- in, uh, you know, simulations right. and simulations have had to go online. And so before you could have a bunch of people in a room and people just organically would have their own conversations and you don't even have to worry about that stuff. Now you have to have the tech that supports that. And so I've been really, that's, what's been on my brain is remote role-playing and even like remote, you know, conversations. How do, how do we talk to each other in the age of COVID and where
0: everything has been pushed online? Right. And what is the best implementation that you have found yet
1: um the the one that's got me excited right now is something called gather in which you can actually like build there's a number of them which are kind of coming online right now which are almost like indie platforms where you can build essentially like maps and then you have an avatar that you move around and so you like One of them is like once you're in certain range of another person's avatar, then you can hear them. And so, uh, you know, you can like move around within the space and control who you're talking to. But at the same time, like I can look at the screen and see that, you know, Tom and Paul are off in the corner talking to one another. And I can assign meaning to that um, because I can see that they're talking even if I can't hear what they're saying, which, again, kind of mimics what we would have in an in-person game or even just in a cocktail party. Um, Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, because like Zoom doesn't do this. Zoom does breakout rooms now, and they've gotten a little bit better about allowing people to control what breakout rooms they go to. But it's been really slow. Like Zoom does the tech of talking to each other really well, but it doesn't the UI of it and the ability to give agency to people about who they talk to zoom's terrible at that. I mean, it's very totalitarian. It's very, I am the teacher or I am the, you know, CEO. And I am now talking to all of you people and you are all listening. In fact, I can turn your mics off and now I'm going to put you to your breakout rooms and you have no control over that. And I'm going to yank you back when I'm ready for it. You know, like that's what zoom is set up for. And that doesn't work for gamers or yeah. cocktail parties or virtual cocktail parties.
0: So. I would love to play a LARP or a, a role-playing game with, in, in, in something similar to Gather. That sounds really cool. Well, we need it, right? Like that's part of the thing that's
1: going on while we're in the pandemic is we're all desperate for social interaction or most most of us are, I certainly am. And so like being able to connect with friends um, across the country now is like essential for my mental health and a lot of people's mental health during this period so you know I, I i'm encouraging people like that listen to this podcast is like prioritize your social activities online these are not indulgences these are important parts of maintaining the connection the social connections that we need as human beings during this period
0: um sounds i would like like two booms in a room sounds like a great game to play with that kind of a uh a, a gather kind of build yeah maybe Maybe I don't know how that would work exactly, but
1: um but yeah I think w- you're what you're talking about though is that you want that kind of interactivity social interactivity that's the kind of thing you're craving, but there yeah. are real challenges about doing that online,
0: yeah. But I, I like the idea of, like, you know, I can only talk to the people I'm close to. I remember, like, in old first-person shooters, like Halo and stuff, like, you could hear the enemy if they were, like, standing right next to you. And, like, then their mics would, you know, turn off if they were in the other room. I always thought that was cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you? What's your game? Yeah, on my brain. I got a lot of games on my brain. The first, like, Jennifer introduced me, and I don't know if I can ever forgive her for this, to a website called philibertnet.com. <laughs> Um, this is a way too easy path for me to buy games from Europe. Way too easy. I, 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 I was like, man, I want bonfire. She's like, just go buy it on PhilibertNet. I got it weeks ago. I was like, what? But I was like, yeah, but it's coming from France. It's not going to cost like a hundred dollars. She's like, no. So I went to Philibert and ordered bonfire. I spent $15 more than I would have spent if I bought it, you know, from game nerds or, or cool stuff. And and they air-mailed it to me, and I had it four days later. And I'm like, oh, that's the end of me. That's yeah, so bad for me to know about. That's for you. That's horrible. It's great so, and horrible at the same time. That's horrible for me and great for our <laughs> podcast. So I've pre-ordered Praga Caput Regni, which I'm really excited about, and Legends of Arnak. And I'll probably order Hollertau the second that they uh, put it up for order, which is the new Uwe Rosenberg game. And Carnegie as soon as that goes up. Uh, the new uh, Sebastian Dujardin, Xavier George game. Uh, or maybe it's just Xavier George. Sorry. Uh, But yeah, I will. Uh, I really wish I didn't know about philibertnet.com. And now you too, listener, can also wish you didn't know about philibertnet.com. <laughs> you spread the virus. P-H-I-L-I-B-E-R-T-N-E-T.com. I'm so sorry. I'll put the link um, in the show notes there. So what you're uh, saying is is that you, you bought some games. Why did you buy those games? Exactly. Why did I buy these games? I'm so stupid, um, uh, speaking of games, why did I buy these games uh Garfield games the uh, all of the West Kingdom uh, games have sent me their Kickstarter that I ordered forever go, and I got Raiders of excuse me, I got Raiders of Scythia and I got uh, Viscounts of the West Kingdom, and I also got Tome Saga of the West Kingdom, which is the boxed game that combines all three games architects paladins and viscounts into one long campaign game or a co-op campaign game which is interesting so i bought that as well i haven't even checked it out yet i don't necessarily know what it is um but yeah uh, trey and i we played uh, one game of viscounts on a tabletop simulator um trey you want to you give brief thoughts on it
1: um you know, I, I'm. I wouldn't say that I'm a hater, but I'm not. A, I'm not the biggest fan of this line of games. I think this this one is. It's a very impressive game, and I think if you're a fan of the others in the series, you will like this one a lot. If you are not a fan of these games and you feel like they're multi, you know, solo games, multiplayer, solo games, this will not change your mind about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, Architects, I think, is still a fantastic mm-hmm. entry point into worker placement games that I would happy, happily recommend to anybody looking for a my first worker placement game type game that still is enjoyable to to you know more experienced gamers. Paladins, to me, is one of my favorite multiplayer solitaire games ever. And for those who multiplayer solitaire isn't a four-letter word, uh, it, it's definitely worth knowing about. And Viscounts, I've only played once, but it feels like uh, a little combination of both i don't it's nowhere near the multiplayer solitaire of um of uh, paladins but it's also uh definitely not an entry level game like architects but but it is more interactive like architects it's, i would say this is maybe the most complex of the three at least the hardest to teach um i, I will reserve judgments till playing more but but i i did want to bring up J- jennifer emailed us um an article that we'll put in the show notes called The Secret Power of White Supremacy and How Anti-Racists Can Take It Back. Uh, Black Lives Matter protesters should consider co-opting the language and trappings of chivalry and knighthood that motivates so many racists. So this is one of those board games that takes place in medieval England or medieval France or I it's think it's medieval, medieval fictional medieval something right like it's not even specific yeah. is it no I th- I think I think it might actually be specific if I if I because I was reading the architect's book which is sort of the the rule book which is sort of where they set the tone for it and I, it sounded like they were saying mostly real places um but there's I, I, I hadn't even noticed that there was basically only white people in this game, and shame on me for not noticing that I, I, that that's something that I hope to just to really break myself of is not noticing that. Um, now, you know, I, I went because when Jennifer sent me this, I went back and goes, "No, there's people of color in paladins. I really thought there was, and when I, when I went and looked through the deck of cards, nah, nah, there really isn't." Um, And when I went and looked through the cards and Viscounts, not really. I mean, there's different shades of color, sure. And there could be arguments made to show that some of these are different ethnicities than white. But it's uh, even that might be a stretch. Either way, there's just no excuse in 2020 to be releasing games that, that are set in historical or fantasy periods that don't have people of color. And if your argument is, but there weren't people of color there, you're historically incorrect. Um, that's just not true, and uh, especially uh, in in a lot of these medieval settings, that wasn't true. And so it, it's worth doing some research on that and trying to break yourself, as I'm trying to, of the not noticing when you are playing a game that you've really only been seeing white people in it. Um, and it's not about forcing people of color into historical periods they were not in. It's about not erasing people of color from historical periods that they were in. And I think some of these games are uh, guilty of that. And I hope that, you know, the designers and Shem Phillips and the people behind Garfield games, um, think about that for, I know they're finished with this trilogy of games and I know they're going off to whatever the next direction will be. They've done North. This was West. I don't know, East or South is next, but I really hope they um, reconsider having different, uh, or or consider having different ethnicities than just white people, especially if they're going to be, you know, historically problematic uh, things like paladins.
1: Right. Because this is not rooted in something that is very specifically historical and then is therefore is historically accurate. It does feel like an oversight he- here. Um, yeah. I think we should hear from Jennifer about this at some at some point. I read this article and um, I I I found it very interesting and it definitely took me down, you know, my own journey of the past. And I think like one of the things we've looked at on the show before um, is like, you know, how many board games are colonialism simulators, you know? And like, I think we, it probably should, you know, send up certain flags. Now some games that we just accepted or I accepted as a teenager or as a younger gamer should trigger flags about like, okay, what am I actually playing here in my four X game? and um i think this this article made me you know look back on some of the fetishization that we do in the gaming community of like knights and the the imagery around you know knighthood and crusaders and cavaliers and just this article kind of flagged that kind of uh imagery as it's often folding in with certain you know white supremacy tropes and for me it was definitely specific in that you know like I grew up in Texas in Georgia and it it has definitely been a process for me of like having to look back at my own upbringing and reevaluate you know a lot of the things that that I went through that I was oblivious about you know probably shouldn't have been but You know, like I've had to look at like the school private school that I loved that I went to in Atlanta and then realize as an adult, like, wait a second, this school, when was it founded? You know, it was founded in the early 60s. It's like, oh, okay, of course, of course, the private school I went to in Atlanta was, you know, it was created in as a direct result of you know the end of segregation and the forced integrations of schools and hey guess what you know the the school guess what their their uh their team name is they're the knights <laughs> you know they're the knights and their colors are white and blue yep you know and and like that especially in a land where you know stone mountain is just a few miles away the you know mm-hmm. the home of the kkk a place that i visited often in my youth and didn't understand the implications of that place It just should be one of those things that, like, why why are we celebrating knights and crusaders and these things
0: so much? And why are they defaulting as good, right? And defaulting as white, especially crusaders. God, well, yeah, jeez. But yeah, anyway, I I I thank Jennifer for sharing that and for um, you know, yeah, it's definitely you know, I, I I would love to live in a world where I can just say, and and many gamers do. All I care about is the mechanics. If it's a great game, I don't care, but I I can't, I I can't be that person anymore. And I, I demand both from my games. And so, you know, it it definitely will will affect my uh, desire to review a game like Viscounts or um, promote a game like it, or, you know, spout love of it, no matter how great the mechanics can be, because That's, you know, I want to reflect back at the hobby, um, the world that I want the hobby to be. And that's, you know, I think we can do better. So, um, (laughs) and with that, Concordia. And with that, let's move on to a game about trading in the Mediterranean. Uh, Trey, will you give us the stats for 2013's mega hit, Concordia? Mega hit. Um, All right. So, Concordia. Designer, Matt Gertz, um,
1: artist Marina Farenbach. Matt Gertz is credited as an artist as well, and Dominic Mayer. Uh, this is a two to five player game. And um, kind of one of the cool things about this game is that there are tons of different maps. There have been a bunch of uh, expansions. Now, we're not going to talk about the expansions in this review, but just just playing the base game. Uh, this is one of those games like Age of Steam where how it plays and its certain player counts can vary based upon the maps that you play. And so that's one of the interesting things about it. Um, So... Want me just to get into like what, what the game's
0: actually about or were there other yeah, stuff to cover? Why don't I I I set the stage and you you walk us through the mechanics of it. Okay. So uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I was just—I was going to read from the designer. I thought I, I liked the way they described it. Actually, so Concordia is a peaceful strategy game. Interesting, of economic development in Roman times for two to five players, age thirteen up. Instead of looking to the luck of dice or cards, players must rely on their strategic abilities. Be sure to watch your rivals to determine which goals they are pursuing and where you can outpace them. In the game, colonists ahem, are sent out from Rome to settle down in cities that produce bricks, food, tools, wine, and cloth. Each player starts with an identical set of playing cards and acquires more during the game. And Trey will now talk us through how the game actually plays. So, in in this game,
1: you you're kind of playing a trading company or a trading league because you're you're establishing trading posts in other parts around the land and so in some ways this feels like a very very typical you know your euro, euro game where hey it's a mediterranean trading game and there's a you know person on the cover you know kind of staring back at you um so what actually makes this game different or it felt different when i first played it at bgg con back in 2013 is it has this great system of uh cards which create your actions. So on your turn, the, the, mech- the mechanics of the game are incredibly simple, where on your turn, you play a card and you play the action on that card. Um, and then it's the next person's turn. And the idea is you have a set number of actions in your hands. And once you've played a card, you do not have access to that card again until you take those cards back into your hand, which takes an entire action. Um so this means you're you're looking at these options of what you have and you're trying to decide what's the right order for me to do this, all the while I'm reacting to what other people do. And so there's both kind of a board presence game where we're playing area control of the various provinces. And, you know, we can get resources from these provinces. And we're extending out our our trading lines so that we have a You know, a physical presence on the board, which I think most people coming into the game are going to look at that and say, this is where the game's at. You know, I need to expand and have tons of presence on the board. And that's and that's half true. The other half is that there is a card drafting aspects of this game, which is that one of the cards you have in your hand is a card that allows you to purchase more cards, which gives you more actions. So you can expand your kind of uh, range of things that you can do by purchasing more cards in the game. And in addition to that, the thing that kind of is truly kind of like exceptional and elegant about Concordia is the cards that you purchase also define your end game scoring. So that every one of these action cards that you have in your hand is both a card you can play for an action on your turn, but it also will be each card allows you to score a certain thing at the end. So as you purchase more cards, like the number of times that you score in a very particular way expands so that you have this lovely balance between what is my board presence and what is my what is the hand inventory of end scoring cards that I have in the game and the tension between wanting to expand my presence on the board or use my resources which are really limited to buy more cards is a kind of constant tension in the game and you need to kind of be able to do both if you want to win.
0: Yeah, um, to me the genius of the game is is what you were describing as the cards you need to take actions are also your victory conditions. To me that was the I still can't think of another game that does that mechanic, and that it 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 reminds me almost of the feeling of playing Dominion, only in the sense that there are two gears in the game, and you must be in one for half the game, and then you must figure out when to shift into the other. And that first one and this one is creating your uh you know your locations and and the things that are going to score points, and then shifting into buying the cards that are going to start multiplying those specific things that you think you're excelling at. Um, and that timing of, of sort of when to shift is it varies every game because it sort of depends on the order they come out. Although you sort of know the order as they're split, the, the deck is split into eras, uh, you know, one, two, three, four, mm-hmm. all the way up to five, depending on the number of players in the game. So you, you can know the breakdown and it, they're actually on the board as a, at least on the uh, sort of base game board, there's a print, a printout showing you how many times each card appears in each era. So you can kind of plan around it, but you don't know the exact time they're going to come out and you don't know exactly what it's going to cost you as there's a sliding scale of bonus. uh, This has a system like through the ages that cards come into the game and the
1: longer they're available, the cheaper they get. So like when a really desirable comes out, like anyone kind of has the option of grabbing it. It's just super spendy. But if it sticks around, it becomes cheaper and cheaper. Um, and so, yeah, that's yeah. very much a through the ages thing. This So, yeah, super simple gameplay, but really um, rich. This is game. I'm trying to remember where it ended up in our, you know, game brain top 50, but it may have been like fourth or fifth. I I think I had this as my second best game. Ben had this
0: at as his number one. Uh, I'm almost positive this was in my top five. Um, it's a yeah, 10 yeah. for me. I mean, I, I have it as game a 10. Game tend to like this game if they, rem-
1: if they remember it. And, you know, even going to, like, what you were saying about, like, that shift, like, this game is a little bit like a splatter game where, like, the mechanisms can be super simple, but, like, actual good strategy can seem really elusive. I, I admit that, like, my approach to the game tends to be, like, what you you just described, which is that I tend to, like push hard for board presence early. And then I've got to shift to cards later on to make sure I can score my board presence. But then Paul and I played with uh, Ben yesterday and Ben's first move was to buy cards. And it was like, what Mm -hmm. you can do that. And like that, <laughs> that's that's a good use of your starting resource. You mean his first his first play was senator straight up? Yeah, he first play of the never game. Seen that. senators, that's and he cool. had a perfectly cool. good move on the on the board. I thought, like, oh, yeah. he's going a real obvious build, you know, build a brick city, build a wine city as opening move. That's standard. Nope, he, he went and grabbed cards, and uh, you know, Ben also you know beat Paul and and, and me by almost twenty points. So, wow. and he's he uh, Ben's a real champion of this game. Um, He was uh, saying that, you know, he's played it enough now where, you know, at times when we first played this game, we thought maybe your card order might be a little bit scripted. Like, Mm -hmm. hey, you have to open Mm -hmm. Architect in order to go and expand your cities. Like that's the, everybody does that as their first turn. It's like, nope. Like the more you understand the game, the more things like an opening Senator might might make sense. An opening Mercator where you're you're buying and selling goods in order to set up your next move. That might... That might make sense. It's it's kind of proven to be a very deep, rich game where your initial impressions might not actually pan out. And I'm still like I'm I love this game. I also don't think I'm that good at it. And so there's something uh, really intriguing about that. The way that it's, some splatter games are like every time I play Indonesia, I feel like I've made a step further in understanding it, and then the next game corrects me that like no no no, you still don't know anything about this game. You're still bad at it. So,
0: um, it's, I think it's a very interactive game in ways that are not typical for interaction. I mean, you're obviously fighting over locations on the map, but you're not ever blocked from a location. That's right. It just gets more expensive. Right. Um, you can build anywhere on the map. You just pay a multiplier in Sesteri, which is the money in the game times the number of houses that are there, including yours. So That's fine for brick because brick costs one buck and some goods. So if there's three people there, it costs you three bucks and some goods. Not a big deal to be late to that. But if you're late to Silk, Silk is $5 and some goods. Uh, If you're the third one in, you're paying $15 and some goods, which is pretty much not affordable unless it's late game and you just have a ton of money. Right, it's affordable Um, at late game kind of. Yeah. So and by then maybe it's not worth it to you. So it, it, it's there is a race in the beginning of the game to a certain extent. Um but there's always races. This game is full of races. Like remember yeah, I did a whole segment
1: on, on on racing and like this game is made up of a series of of races of to get to a certain trading post first or to buy certain cards first. It always feels like you're looking over your shoulder of like is, is somebody trying to do what I'm going to do and I'm going to be second to this thing? Is somebody going gr- to grab that card? Because I've yeah. already got three silk cities or cloth cities, so
0: I really need that particular card. Nope. You know, Ben grabbed it. You know, like there... It's the, It's got one of my favorite games of chicken in any board game too, which is the, pre- <laughs> the prefect game of chicken. So the prefect is maybe the most important in the card in the game tied with architects. So the prefect is how you produce all your goods in a region. So there's... Every region will have two or three goods in it, and the, uh, the most expensive good becomes the bonus good for that region. So when you play the prefect, you can make a whole region produce, and the person who uh, played the prefect card gets the bonus good. But then everybody who has a house there produces the good that their house is on. Um, so there's a really fun game of chicken because you would much rather, for the most part, have somebody else prefect your area and you get goods without having to spend an action. Right. And so Paul and I had a a couple fun turns where we were basically playing chicken to see who could wait the longest to produce the goods we both desperately needed from an area that we both had houses in. Um, And that's always really fun. And then there's also the fun chicken game of every time somebody plays a prefect, it flips over a tile on the board that then is worth money. And the more tiles that are flipped over, you can play a prefect and just collect all the money, which then resets the whole board. So that's a really fun game of chicken too, because at a certain point it gets so high that it's, it's impossible not yeah, so to, turn. Just have
1: to take the money.
0: Yeah. But you never feel good about it. I mean, it's nice to get 12 bucks, but you also feel like, well, I didn't really do anything this turn other than help because everybody's happy to see you do it too, because now they can, they can re prefect those places and get their bonus goods again. And so. There's so many things where it's like, I have to do this, but you're you're always interested in other people's turns is what I'm saying is that yeah. you're always hoping they do something. And then there's the diplomat, the diplomat copies anybody's face up card they just played. So you're always interested in what other people are playing because, oh man, I don't want to have to play my architect this turn. I want to diplo somebody else's architect. Oh, please. Somebody played architect. Yes. You played an architect. That means I'm going to get to architect twice, once off my diplo, once off my own before I have to reset and hit the tribune card. So like, you know, it's highly interactive. You can diplomat somebody, if somebody else bought a card, that's very powerful. You can can copy
1: the effect. And so, I mean, I think that rather than getting specific about these cards, the main takeaway is there's incredible richness to these actions. That's very interactive. And it is one of those games where it isn't just about what happens on your turn a lot of the best stuff is happening on other players' turns, both whether, you know, something bad happens where somebody, you know, was able to build in the city You know, that you were trying to get to before you can. So now you can't afford it. But sometimes it's a good thing, which is they flip, you know, they prefected a province that you're in. And now you have the resources to kind of do your super move that you thought you were going to have to, you know, spend another round, you know, building up your resource for it, do it. So it has it has a little bit of that monopoly, you know, good stuff, interesting stuff happens on other people's Mm -hmm. uh, turns. You know, I, I talked to Jennifer a little bit about this before, and she she doesn't love this game. I don't want to speak too much for her, but one thing she said was like she found the turns in this game, she called the micro turns to be like yeah. too small. Um, I think from for, uh, this is just you know my taste for things like there's no such thing as too small a turn. Like the worst thing for me is long gaps where like I felt felt like, oh, I could walk away from the table for 20 minutes before I come back and play the game. You know, here the turns are pretty snappy, good, you know, interesting stuff's happening on other people's turns. And then I take another smaller turn, but maybe to Jennifer, like that's not consequential enough when it's yeah it's to your time. So again, that just is a, you know, as she said, that's a matter of, of personal, uh, taste.
0: Yeah. I think there, maybe- there's there there's the 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 quickness of the turns to me leads to an addictive sort of civilization, the video game, one more turn, one more turn. like i'm I'm always, oh God, get I want I wanted my turn again. I got I got I'm so excited to do this thing. And yes, they are small um for the most part, but they I'm always dying for it to be my turn again, which I always think is a good sign. It's also the case that the game the end of the game is always looming. Here and you
1: don't know like how much more do we really have and it it tends to actually really accelerate at the end too like even though this game is not the shortest game it doesn't overstay its welcome and it often races to uh, to the end in a way that's v- that at least you know brings things to a close in a in a very definitive way that I think is is a strength uh I mean I think that was part of our one part of my problems with like Viscounts the other day when we played it's like we felt like this game should be ending why isn't it ending like when a game overstays its welcome that's a problem and Concordia I don't feel like it ever does that yeah
0: yeah no and 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 it's the scoring at the end is fun too I mean I I, there's something really exciting about You 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 never really know who's winning, and it doesn't Mm -hmm. do it in a way of of memorization, like where you know oh we we've we've all taken you know certain uh, contract cards and flipped them over, and I haven't quite been tracking who took the most. Like that that to me is an unsatisfying. I don't know who's winning, but this is really. You know, there's a a lot of, okay, so Trey's definitely going for wine and he's got the Vintner card times, he's gotten two of them now. So I'm doing in my head, that's worth, you know, he's got at least 15, but if he places one more than that, all those cards become worth five more. So like you can get a feel just by looking at the map and sort of seeing what people are going towards, like their basic score. But you, I really, like the game we played the other day, I really didn't think I had won. And I barely won I, I beat Paul by one point, and I think I was ahead of you by two. I mean, like it was a really tight game, and that was really exciting. I mean, it was like
1: mm-hmm. I,
0: I you know w- we we all went into it feeling like we had done pretty good, but we all probably went into it not thinking we were going to win, which i think is <laughs> which is pretty cool it, yeah
1: and the question then is like did the cards I purchased like how many did I purchase, but also did they end up matching up with my actual board presence correctly because it's certainly possible of like oh i think this card is going to be good for me and then it's disappointing and so you know how how well did you sync your game there's a lot of uh skill in that yeah so as kind of a final thought at least for me on this is um you know because like this is not a new game but this is a top 10 game and i think uh what i would say is like okay this is i don't know would you call this a grail game Like I think this is the game that every game brainer should certainly know and have played. And I also think that it is, it's probably the right game. Like when you're, when you're bringing other people into the hobby and they've said, Oh, well we played Catan over at a friend's house sometime. And you're wondering like, what's the next game that I could bring them in and play. I think Concordia is probably that great next step game for, you know, your people that are fairly new to the hobby they played Gatan. they're excited and they're ready for something else. Uh, this game is so elegant and simple, but it, it has depth and it, it's worked for me a number of times when I've taken people who do not consider themselves gamers and they've gotten into the game and understood it and had a great time and are eager to play more games.
0: Yeah. So, so I, I went on a vacation with my wife's family a couple of years ago. Um, and she has, my wife has three brothers. Um, none of them are gamers, but none of them are not gamers. They just, they, you know, they're, they're, none of them are against the idea of gaming. They just don't game. Um, and I brought one game, which was Concordia. And the four of us sat down at night and we played it the first night and they, they were, it was okay. They're having fun. I walloped them. <laughs> but when we when of course, as you should, and you know, this is definitely a game where the more you played, the better you'll be. Um, but when we, but when we, I remember when we were doing scoring at the end, and we scored everything up, and I could just see the light bulb turn on in all of their heads. And when the final scores came in, and they figured out how the game worked, they all went, "Oh, this is really good." And we played it every single night we were on vacation. And by the end, they were beating me, um, and they fell in love with it. And it was so interactive, and it was like it was like showing somebody, you know, a whole new hobby. It was like me the first time I played Battlestar Galactica, and like my brain exploded um and i think it's it's always been my you know what's the first game i should buy getting into this hobby thing and it it's it's pretty much always my go to because it's very easy to teach um you know comparatively uh to the other games well, you, you were going to talk I, about I, the rule book cuz like it this should be easy right to well teach, i'm about but... to yes it is i'm <laughs> about to get into my one negative this is the worst rule book in board games um I don't even think anything comes close. It's it's so the worst board game that I can't even think of a second place. And here's why. It's split into multiple, like there's a there's a whole double-page thing on the setup of the game. Right. Then there's a separate rule book for the rules. But there are rules in the setup that aren't in the rule. I mean, it's so. Asinine. It it actually I get angry talking about the. It makes no sense. Like who? Like it's mean. It's it just feels cruel. It's like somebody wanted the game to feel more complicated than it is. So watch a video or have someone teach you if you know. I, I hate this. I mean, if I haven't played the game in a couple of months and I want a refresher, it takes me like 30 minutes to parse all the like, oh, right. I forgot this one thing that's only written here and not here. Well, it doesn't I, really I, have that many exceptions. It's just it's
1: just an example of a bad rule book because it should be an easy teach. Yeah. And they even have a thing. I was going to a similar thing you were it. talking about where I was having to look something up and it was so difficult just to find something like, wait, how much money do we start with? Like it was impossible to find. Um, But it did have a good suggestion, or, you know, debatably, is it like for your first game, they do, they recommend you do something called like an intermediate scoring. Just so that, because like you had that moment with your friends there where you're saying like they did the final scoring and the light bulbs came on. Mm -hmm. Like they, the intermediate scoring option allows that light bulb to come on at the first time that you tribune so that they understand it's like oh well the cards i have will actually determine the score that i have at the end so i need to be thinking about these multiple things and then uh and then they say like well once people know the game you don't actually do this you don't actually do the intermediate scoring but yeah. it's a necessary thing in the teach but again in a better rule book that would that would have been a, a great thing that would have been kind of like the way that blizzard teaches you the game by playing the game um and it's not necessary for you to play a multiplayer version of StarCraft, but when you're learning the campaign, you have to learn things incrementally. Like that could have been a great thing, but the rulebook's so poor that it just ends up being confusing.
0: Um. Yeah, absolutely. I want to do a quick five minutes on, or, or maybe less. I just want to run down. What it means if you want to get into Concordia, because it's a little confusing right now. There are two base games for Concordia, and then an expansion and a lot of maps. I'm going to give you a 10-second description of each of them just to help you understand. There's Concordia base game, which you can buy for about $60. bucks. There is Concordia Venus, which you can buy for about 80 bucks. What's the difference? They're both base games. The difference is Concordia, the base game, came out in 2013 and comes with two maps a sort of three four-player map and a four five-player map. Concordia Venus, it plays to five players. Concordia Venus came out about a year ago, two years ago, it plays to six, it has a five to six-player map and a four to five-player map, maybe three, four, five-player map. Um, it has a different map on the other side of the main board that plays to six, and Concordia, the base game, has a different map on, on the other side of the main board that plays three or four. You can't get you, you can't get the one that's on Venus and not on Concordia without buying an expansion. It's very confusing. But the main difference between Venus and Concordia is Venus has a team-based mode in the game, wherein you play in teams, and there are specific rules for that. We've tried it once. It was okay. Maybe it'd be interesting. I kind of just wanted to play normal Concordia the whole time. I'm not reviewing that. I can't speak to it. Maybe you'd love it. Um, there is also a slight difference. Concordia Venus has an extra card that base Concordia doesn't, you could always take it out and play base Concordia, but that's also a variant. So that's not the actual game. So Concordia Venus has a card called the Magister, which is a separate card that is not included in Concordia. People have different feelings on it. Basically what I'm saying is if you're going to just buy one, I'd probably buy Concordia Venus. It's about $10 more. You will get up to six players, if that's interesting to you. It comes with the extra card if you want to play that version, or you could take it out and play base. It comes with a co-op, you know, sorry, the team-based mode. It has a little bit more for only a little bit more money. I'd start with that. There's also an expansion called Salsa. It has a new resource called Salsa, which is a wild resource. It also has forum tiles, which I actually really like. Mm -hmm. Forum tiles are asymmetrical ongoing powers that you can buy throughout the game. Using the same way that you buy cards, you can now instead buy forum tiles. And they can either be one-time use superpower turn things, or they can be rule-breaking asymmetrical powers. I think they're super fun. Do I prefer it over base? Probably not, but is it a really cool thing to try every once in a while? Absolutely. Beyond that, there's a million different maps. I won't bore you with explanations of all of them, but if you want to play two-player Concordia, you can't get that in a base game. Two-player Concordia is great. I've played a lot of it. It's really fun. I highly recommend it. You have to buy special maps for it, just like Age of Steam. There are a couple great ones. Um, you can look them up if you want to know right now, my favorite two player map, it's Krita, which is in the maps pack three, but anyway, whatever player count you're looking for from two to six, there is a map that's perfect for that. Um, and you can find more information on the best maps for player numbers on BGG, but that's everything you need to know about Concordia, because if you are new to Concordia, it is actually quite confusing figuring out what the heck you're supposed to buy. When you, if you go to Amazon and look at 400 different things that say Concordia, so that should tell you everything. Um and yeah, that's it. Obviously, um we love it. It's I have 15 games on the BGG rated 10. It is one of them. If I had only 10 games in my collection, um Concordia would be one of those. Concur. Concur. Trey, do you want to lead us into our topic for the week? Sure. Uh struggled to like
1: how to define this exactly. Um but I will just say like I started thinking about, I played a bunch of uh Gloomhaven jaws of the lion i I met up with a good buddy of mine in austin and uh he he's at home uh and and can't really work right now because he's going through chemotherapy and so like he wants to nerd and so we got some serious nerding in and so like i'd finally got a chance to play gloomhaven and jaws of the lion with its focus on you know being um accessible to new players and that it teaches you while you play it was like, here's my chance to play this. And I'd say it went really well. Um, I, you know, I had a good time. He really enjoyed it. I still think that Gloomhaven's not exactly like my kind of game, but I see what the big deal is Ooh. now. And I think, you know, it's obviously it's a really good game and it does a really good job of, of teaching you the game um, as, as you play it. And so I went back and I re-listened to your review with Jesse um however many weeks ago that was. And I would say that like I think my reaction to the game was was very uh similar to yours. Um anyway, I was just starting to think about the, the mechanics in that game and the, and at first I was thinking like, maybe I should do something about like the, cause I'm always talking about randomness. Like even Dimitris talks about me talking about randomness and input randomness and output randomness. And just like, these are interesting design decisions that go into, into games. And I guess maybe I would start off by saying like, is Gloomhaven a deck builder? Like, what do we mean when we talk about deck building?
0: Like, do you do you consider Gloomhaven? I, I wouldn't consider it a typical deck builder. In that, you are you are really only building a deck maybe once every other scenario, and by building, you're you're just sort of adding one card that can slightly change the tone. Over time, you can drastically change the way your character plays, but it takes a while. I also think you have your whole hand of cards available to you. I mean, the only real deck building is before a scenario you have to pick the cards that you're going to take into that scenario. That's the deck building. Then you have your whole hand available to you. So if if you were shuffling it up and drawing a couple cards each turn and there was more randomness there, to me, then that would be... I guess to me, when I think deck builder, I think a constantly think evolving good. deck, but also a huge amount of randomness and luck based on, you know, hoping that I've... Uh, figured out the probabilities correctly so that I'm drawing what I need when I need it. So I think you just said a bunch of stuff there that goes into um,
1: how you play Gloomhaven. And maybe like what I want to do is to go into more detail, like all those distinctions that you just made. I think are really important. And and my point in this discussion is not to actually say this is deck building and this is deck construction and this is hand management and that these are firm rules. They're not, I think they're actually just really interesting uh, design decisions that you're talking about. So let's, we're going to talk about Gloomhaven here. I don't think that any of this is going to be spoilers because we'll just talk about, you know, general uh, mechanics here, but like, as you level up in Gloomhaven Like when you first play the game, especially Jaws of the Lion, I think you start with like six cards. Like it's basic. It's super basic just so you can kind of learn the rules. And then as you start to level up, you get the point where like, okay, now I'm getting my first level cards and I get all of them. And then I think like maybe at level, it's either level two or level three where you, for the first time, you have to decide, I have an option of two cards here. And I'm going to choose one of these things. And it's not that I'm ruling out that I won't ever get the second one but I'm making an actual decision about like what kind of character I'm going to be mm-hmm. at that point.
0: And so like yeah, you can get it later, but it will be at the cost of getting a better card, probably, <laughs> a card that's probably
1: better. So yeah, even though it doesn't, it doesn't explicitly mean you're leaving it behind. You probably are because you, the, yeah. the, the, the opportunity cost of taking a better card is too high for you to go back and take that other level two card. So in terms of just like how this actually breaks down now, so you're now starting to build up a, 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 an ever-expanding set of action options in terms of the cards that you play in Gloomhaven. But you actually have a hand cap, right? Like depending on the, cl- the actual role you're playing in the game, this cap's even different. Like I remember I played Red Guard, there was a 10-card cap on this, whereas uh, my buddy was playing Demolitionist and he always had to deal with nine. And that distinction made a big difference in terms of like, I was, I had a lot more endurance in the scenarios, whereas he tended to kind of flame out and like, he was not necessarily in danger of dying from hit points, but he was always in danger of being exhausted just from playing cards in that game. So the distinction you were making then is like, okay, I'm going into a new scenario. I've got, you know, 16 cards to choose from, and I've got to get it down to nine. Right. So I think, so what I'm going to refer to now are the mechanisms that BGG is using. You know, if we've talked about this a little bit before, but like Board Game Geek now has an entire section devoted to mechanics. And they don't, by the way, they don't call it mechanisms. So that debate, I I guess, is kind of, I mean, BGG is going to call it mechanics. So whatever. But this is all based upon, I think that they've just lifted the distinctions that jeff engelstein and isaac shalev identified in their book building blocks of game design which i think came out last year and this is a book that people can get and i'll put a a link to it in show notes and uh, i even have like i've got a set of cards that has the the mechanisms on that so you can kind of use this if you're a budding game designer or even just to see what these distinctions are but So anyway, using BGG's own terms, I think the idea of like I have 14 cards and I now need to make my deck of nine like that would be deck construction as a Mm -hmm. a mechanic. And I like the prime example of deck construction would be a game like Magic the Gathering, right, where you've got access to a large card pool, Uh, whether it's magic. These are cards that you've purchased and some of them are rarer than others or whatever and then you have to make a deck from that that's deck construction or then if it's an lcg like game of thrones or netrunner you can kind of have access to the entire pool as long as you've purchased it um but like those decisions of like what you do to put into your deck that can be a very rich thing just to begin with and that's an important part of of gloomhaven so bgg also Like their actual definition of deck building is when players play cards out of individual decks, seeking to acquire new cards and play through their decks iteratively, improving them over time through card acquisition. And this would also cover things like bag building from, uh, you know, other games that we play like that. Uh, The best example, uh, not Troyes, but uh,
0: Orléans would be one, Mm -hmm. right? And the West Kingdom does the same thing, yeah.
1: Yep. And then what's, what's the, um, what's the bag
0: builder? That's the, uh, potion one. Uh, Oh, quacks of Quedlinburg. Yeah. Quacks of Quedlinburg. Oh, right. Yeah. No, the, yeah. Sorry. The, the paladins is not to what you're talking about Yep. but quacks is. Yep.
1: So the thing is, is like, when you look at that definition, like when we play Concordia, we all start out with the same, I think seven action cards or, or whatever, it is. And then are we start to become asymmetrical as we acquire more cards from that, po- you know, as an action where we can buy more cards. Um, but even that, like that would be, I think what we would call or what BGG would call card drafting. Okay. And yeah. so, like card drafting are games in which players pick cards from a limited subset, yeah. such as a common pool to gain some advantage intermediate or long term or to assemble hands of cards that can be used to meet objectives in the games so they're calling so that would be things like through the ages concordia and then i guess saint petersburg was the first one Mm, okay to do that and like even that might be and so i guess the distinction they're going to make in terms of card drafting is you know, there's a pool of cards out there and you're making a decision about what, with, what you're going to take. And like, there might be some stuff that's more expensive, but it's a common thing that we're competing for. And that may even be different from, I don't know, like in seven wonders, we're drafting cards. Right. But you're not, But it's kind of like, here's your set. Now choose one, then pass. Right. Right. So, maybe the final mechanism that kind of fits into this area is um what BGG is calling hand management. And Jennifer talked with me a little bit or or uh, messaged me earlier this week talking about how she does not like hand management games, even though and then she went and looked and a lot of her favorite games are flagged on BGG as hand management games.
0: yeah, what what give me a breakdown of hand management? So the
1: way they define hand management are games with cards in them that reward players for playing cards in certain sequences or groups. Um, So I think what they're talking about in hand management, and again, this is totally.
0: That sounds like Gloomhaven to a T.
1: Yes, but it's also Concordia, right? Because you're looking at your Mm -hmm. hand and you're saying, what's the thing I want to play right now? But even then, I may be balancing. I'm like, listen, it may be good to play this card right now, but it might be better if I wait.
0: Like in so the like teach you thing. also right, what's that? Like teach you also right?
1: Yeah, I guess in determining what you want to lead. Yeah, that would and absolutely you, well, the, be or, the order that you want. to Yeah, yeah, play. yeah. No, absolutely. Teach you would totally be hand. I mean, a lot of those card games. I guess yeah. this is a generic mechanism here, but it's saying like I'm looking at my hand and I'm making decisions about what cards I'm playing from my hand. That's that's hand that's hand management. Yeah. So maybe the thing to that takes that uh, is going back to like the distinction you were making on what makes something a deck builder. And I don't think there's necessarily a word for this, but like there's a thing that Dominion does and that Viscounts did, which is it put in this intermediate step where like when when we play um, Concordia and we play the Tribune card, we get all of our cards back into our hand and now we are able to play them. That's not the way Dominion works. That's not the way that Viscounts work. Rather, like once you refresh your discard pile, you now have a deck and you may draw a certain number of cards from that deck that then becomes your hand.
0: Yeah, you've changed your probabilities.
1: Yeah. And so there's a lot of randomness in terms of like what you draw then. And that randomness is in this kind of weird space that, you know, a lot of times is mostly going to is going to be considered input randomness in that it's kind of like the idea is okay you've drawn your hand this is your situation now make decisions accordingly right like yeah. random setup the random setup of dominion has a lot of not dominion of concordia has a lot of input randomness so like here's our random setup of the board you know make decisions accordingly
0: But you, um, you know it's funny what aspect of deck building feels more like deck building to me than anything else in gloomhaven is the way you tweak your modifier deck that mm-hmm. to me feels like classic deck building, right? So your modifier deck is basically your 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 loaded dice that you know every time you you take an attack, you're going to draw a card off this, and it's going to tell you if you missed, if you critted, or if you know your attack went up a couple or down a couple. But as you level up, you can start taking out cards. So it's almost like if you had a d6, and as you get stronger, you say, "Well, I'm going to lose the one and replace it with a two. So now at least I'll never roll a one. Uh, or you know, I'm going to get rid of I'm going to make, you know, three and four, both fours, but now I have two ones in my deck, you know, so, so to me that, that is classic deck building and that I'm, I'm trying to tweak the probabilities in a way that, um, that, that benefits my play style.
1: Yeah, I agree. And that's, that's kind of where I started on this whole thing was I was, I was looking at these distinctions and then I kind of realized like, wait a second, am I thinking about when I'm thinking about Gloomhaven, am I thinking about the wrong deck? like is it actually the modifier deck that they're talking about with with deck building and i think like this was also like when i was you know just thinking about gloomhaven from a design perspective like the modifier deck like i don't know if i really like it i mean in, in i'm not and i'm not saying i'm uh, i'm not saying it's wrong like for one thing like gloomhaven occupies this weird space where it's it's a dungeon crawler it's very it's you know it's semi rpg ish it's not like true rpg ish but there's plenty of games where i'm sure rather than having a modifier deck you just roll a die yeah and instead it gives you this deck and then as you level you can modify it and kind of craft it to whatever you're doing with your with your character but you're mostly just improving it just and, make it better, yeah yeah i remember from your review like you were talking about the moments where you miss like there's a oh. single miss card in the deck
0: yeah if 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 you draw that miss card on your big turn where you're blowing your one time use card that's your bomb card and you've put everything on this and you this is the whole scenario depends on you dealing the damage necessary to kill the boss with your bomb card that you've purposefully not used the entire game and that's a miss no that's so not fun that i just will cheat that's how not fun it is right, right. that's that to me is no i will just like literally i before i turn the card i go if this is the miss i'm not i'm just reshuffling because no no yeah, that's right. just no that's not Right. You've ruined my whole game. No, so that's the so that's a question, and I'd be curious to hear from people listening
1: to the podcast of of like I'd like to hear a defense for why is this card there? You know, like why does why does it have to have a miss? And like I was starting to think about this, and it, it was like, is this something that's left over from like the RPG Dungeons and Dragons bones of this whole dungeon crawler? You know genre here is like do you need to have because like obviously there are crits in this game there's the times where you flip the the times two, and then as you build your deck up later with modifiers there's some other times where it's like oh i've added this one card and it's going to give me a fire and a and a water thing so that my abilities will really trigger now going forward like it gives you the opportunity for crits and like those crits are fun the the what we used to call fumbles in D, like the fumbles aren't fun, but like there was a place for it in a role-playing game. Like when you're playing a role-playing game and you're telling a story, a lot of times the epic fails are really interesting. Yeah. You know, like sure. Paul, Paul's whole thing about like recreating memories, you know, and like epic fails in a role-playing game can be wonderful. They're the kind of things you're still talking about years, years later. Couldn't agree more. But it seems out of place in in Gloomhaven.
0: Yeah, d- there's nothing fun about having to replace scenario 14B again. And I'm not <laughs> like, going to do it,
1: right. Like I'm no, like I'm never like, going to. I'm not going to. That was it.
0: two hours. I'm not doing that again. My time is too precious to me. Also, like I, I will just say, I I know all the experienced Gloomhaven players are going. Well, yeah. Well, before you make that huge, super important turn, you better make sure you have advantage so that you are drawing two cards. And my response to that is. That's the same as me cheating. You're just you're you're agreeing with me that under no circumstance will you allow a miss to happen on that turn, in which case I go back to Trey's question is why is that card in the game?
1: And and I think there there may be good reasons for it. I'm just not sure I understand it. Like I remember there was a really good article from Richard Garfield, you know, who's who I'm stealing all of my thoughts about randomness. They're all just cribbed from from Richard Garfield. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, he specifically was looking back at, I think, a designer diary on Team Fortress 2. And they were looking at that game and the point in their own development where they had had not a lot of chance in the game that it was a fairly straightforward shooter at one point. And then they started to put a certain uh, a high degree of randomness into... Uh, various shots you took where you could both miss very rarely or crit um you know some, somewhat rarely and all of a sudden the game just innately became more fun like crazier stuff just started to happen and you got these kind of explosions of randomness and and crazy stuff happening that just translated to fun. So, you know, I've I've you know raised an eyebrow a few times when Dimitri has said that like I'm anti-randomness. I'm not like randomness has a lot of Really important functions in games, and that's a whole different subject. But I guess what I'm saying is, like, it should have the right kind of randomness, mm-hmm. and whether it's you whiff on something, and now I've got to restart the scenario. Boy, that wasn't fun. I want to quit. I had a number of moments playing Gloomhaven where the bad guys whiffed, in a sense, mm-hmm. that also took the fun out. And it wasn't even necessarily that they flipped a a miss card. It was like uh, playing certain scenarios where there's a boss monster, and the when you're flipping their like their little AI cards of what action they're going to pursue. Sometimes the like they have a choice between like healing themselves or healing all other allies, right. and like you flip the card that says, "Okay, the boss this turn is healing all allies." Well, all of the other allies in certain scenarios. Like they're already at full hit points and you don't care because you need to kill yeah. the boss first before you know It just gave you a free turn. It just gave you a free turn. It's like, boy, this scenario just got real easy because Ooh. like in a sense, that's the same thing. Like the, the the randomness in this game just produced something that made no sense and made it unfun. Like making the game too easy is not fun either.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean Gloomhaven is famous for for, for doing well the idea that every scenario comes down to like one card flip and like mm-hmm. you either win or lose. Like it does that really well. Like that tension it is scales, there.
1: It scales really well. Right.
0: Yeah. And, and more often than not, you do find yourself like, well, we either win or lose this turn, but I'll just say that every time I lose, I pretend I won cause I'm not going to do it again. <laughs> cause there's not, there's literally nothing fun for me about doing something again. When the only difference between winning and losing was the flip of a card and not like, it's not like, well, I'm going to get that much better on the next one. Like I did it right. It's supposed to come down to a coin toss and okay, cool. I lost I, to me. It's just like, all right, there's, there's just nothing new for me to explore there and playing it again to see if I get the coin toss. Right. So, yeah.
1: So like the, the fun, so the, I guess the, the final thing I would, I would, I would say on this is like, that was a frustration when we played Viscounts, which I'm sure we'll have a review of that coming up relatively soon where things that should feel like input randomness ended up in effect being output randomness where like that additional step in Viscounts, where like I've got my deck and now I'm drawing my up to my hand size to see what I can do next turn. Like you, you in that game, you buy other cards and like I had certain cards that were going to define my strategy. And when I didn't draw them, when I'm drawing back up after resetting my deck, if I don't draw those, that just that feels like a whiff like that's a miss in in a sense um and and what's supposed to be an input random decision is now as an output like this happens in dominion too where like you want to buy a certain card so like i want to see a bunch of gold cards i didn't you know that's a whiff in terms of your turn a lot of times and like you could see like you could you could interject this stage into concordia where rather than drawing up your entire card hand you know hand of actions Rather, you draw the top, you shuffle and draw the top five. But like, that wouldn't be a better game. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm just saying, like, make sure, maybe the final note, maybe be like, make sure that the mechanisms in your game are actually doing what you want them to do.
0: Yeah. No, that's, and it's interesting. I think about this a lot because, and this is one of the reasons that I'm very glad that I don't design board games because I have no good answers for it really. But I, I know when I'm experiencing it and when I'm not. Like, a game like, kingdom death monster is not wildly dissimilar from gloomhaven in its experience but i relish a loss in kingdom death monster i i have no problem with losing in fact a total whiff on a die roll in the last thing is fine because i really because because each time like you don't feel like you're redoing the scenario in fact the next one is going to be very different you you know your path to get back to the boss will be different you 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 know it's it it the the loop in that one doesn't feel like um you're just having to do the level over again and to me Well, how's it i don't i I, don't know the
1: game well enough how is it different you're so you're not just repeating the scenario what makes it different in this game
0: the whole game is the loop. And the, the loop is go to town, level up your town so that things in town get better, so that your probabilities get better of making better heroes. Pick your team that's going to go out, and you can pick different members of your team that are better at different things. Everybody has different psychoses and like emotional issues. And so the team you pick, like, Could be a whole bunch of cowards who are really strong, or a whole bunch of weak people who are really smart, or a combination of. So, like always, that putting that group together is very different. And then when you embark on, so there's there's the town building section. Then there's the journey to the boss, and the journey to the boss is a random events uh, series of events that's different every time off this huge deck, and that totally has a different feel to it. So that by the time you get to the boss your team is in a different shape because that path to the boss will either mess you up or usually a combination of hurting you and giving you boons so that by the time you get to the boss it feels like a complete it has a rogue like feeling like mm-hmm. a roguelike video game where it's like yes you're doing the same thing but it comes out in such a different random order every time that it that you relish the differences you know what i mean whereas in gloomhaven the only real difference will be you know, a, maybe a tweak of my strategy and the way, you know, the, a different flip of the card. But it, it, I, I don't relish the loop in Gloomhaven. What I relish is progression. Yeah. In Gloomhaven, so I, it's
1: more like you went to your last save point, right? It's more like- Exactly. A, you know, right. Exactly. I could, and I guess you could tweak your skills and say, I need more movement or something like that, But but you're really just going back to a save point.
0: Right. It, to me, I guess it's like an agreement I have with the game at the beginning. Like in Gloomhaven, my agreement is progression, character growth, getting stronger, seeing more story. In Kingdom Death, it's seeing more of the game while experiencing the same loop. So it's like the more loops I do, the more I see. And that to me is what's fun. Whereas in Gloomhaven, the, the, I want to get to the end, you know, and it's like and I and I'm not I don't want to go back. Well, I'm, going back is not fun. So maybe, maybe that's
1: the, the my final thought on this. Maybe also and I don't I don't have answers on this, but like this is an area where like this game is really really different from an RPG, in that like the the, the loop as you say here, I feel like when you're really playing Gloomhaven, you are on that knife's edge all the time of failing your, a scenario, and in fact it's probably part of the game. Or like if you played through and you never failed, you're probably not doing it right, right? Oh, like totally, you're, you're not on the right difficulty. Uh, adjustment. Um, and so you're like, you want, you want that to be right on the edge every time. Cause that's when it's at its best is when you just barely succeeded. But that's so different than an RPG where, you know, if you actually played a scenario out and everyone failed, like that's a total party kill. Like that's a, in RPG land, like there's an, there's a term for it. Total party kill. Like that could be the end of your group everybody went yeah. there sort of <laughs> that could be the end of a relationship after then and, and i think like one of those things you're always juggling when you're playing an rpg is like oh this is going poorly should we run you know like should we bail yeah you know and yeah. like and so it just ends up creating these like different loops and i'm kind of going back to the whole idea of crits and fumbles is that like is there something about output randomness that's essential in an rpg and I know that a lot of indie RPGs like don't have that much chance in them now, but a lot of them still do. But like part of it is that like success and failure in an RPG is becoming like less and less of the point, but maybe original D&D it was, but it just feels more at home where the, the epic fails can be just as interesting as the epic successes. But even then, like you think about like the core, like, cause you DM D&D cause you want to know what it was like. But like yeah. your core loop in and I think about this just in terms of like narrative design or games design. Um, like if you're playing a core D&D loop or like core RPG loop, at least old school RPGs is like the DM says, what do you want to do? And the player then articulates what they want to do. Like, I want to do such such an action. Like, and the most basic one is I'm going to attack. But it can be I'm going to climb the walls. I'm going to pickpocket. I'm going to cast this spell. And then. You know, like if it's in question, then the DM says, Well, it sounds like you're doing a blah blah check. Role to succeed. Player roles, did you hit or miss? Did you succeed? Was it a crit? You know, was it a failure? Was it a fumble? Did something really bad happen? But like that's your that's your loop yeah. in in the game. Um and like that's incredibly flexible loop that's great for
0: telling stories. And yeah. it's like and a, a good DM job is to keep the illusion of that, you know, barely surviving loop going over and over again.
1: Yeah. And you also like you want it, you want the thing, like even if it's like the thing they're going to do, like a lot of times you have people do skill checks on stuff that you know they're going to succeed on, even because like you just want oh, them yeah. referencing their skills.
0: Yeah. And and there's a reason that DMs roll dice behind their shields. It's Mm -hmm. because they get to decide whatever the die says.
1: All right. That's what I got.
0: I love it. That was awesome. Thank you, Trey. Um, yeah, let's hear from people uh, in the community. Yeah, though. we have a lot of Glenhaven players out there. A lot.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm willing to keep an open mind about like I'd I'd love to hear a great defense of the Whiff, and I know yeah. probably like as you thin your modifier deck, you have got to have that thing to keep players honest or whatever. And there's a, there are good design questions that go into having that there, but just from emotional response, it's it seems bad, man.
0: Yeah, I would I would like to hear from players who relish a loss who who, <laughs> yeah. who, are, who don't mind it at all and are like yes let's do this scenario again i cannot in wait. defense of failure by yeah edmund england or something <laughs> yeah exactly hit us up um you feel like doing a couple sommeliers yeah great let's do it sometimes a player just got to know which game should stay which game should go which to play with my mom my, dad, my boo you got to tell me monsieur just what to do Want to make an impression, but I can't get far with my 50th play of Agricola. A million games. Show me the way to the master, the game somalier. Apologies to Tom, because recently... We went a few weeks without getting sommeliers, and then I got four the week before my episode, and I burned through all four of them, and Tom was upset that I didn't save a few for him. So um, we have a bunch this week. Please send, keep sending them in. I appreciate it, but we're, I'm not going to burn through all of them this time, Tom, and I'm going to pass them over to you. We're going to do two today that I kept for Trey and I. Uh, this first one is from Elizabeth. Her message is, I'm looking for games to play with my parents over the holidays, specifically my dad. He's 79, partially deaf, and his eyesight is bad. I am an only child, so I'm looking for games for two or three. I thought about Battleship, but wondered if y'all could recommend some games for us. We enjoy playing dominoes. Thank you. Anything spring to mind there, Trey? I was Other than the the bad eyesight
1: means no code names, um, and I guess that's four players. I mean, I think, what,
0: Wavelength? Wavelength, yep, absolutely. Just, Just one. One. again, like
1: the, the the player count is the problem here, right?
0: Yeah. Um, but she did say two. I mean, there's a lot of great games at two in this area that like I would say uh Lost Cities, mm-hmm. um Patchwork, Fox in the Forest. Um, those are all fantastic two player games. And I think I would recommend Love Letters, potentially Azul. Um and I think maybe even No Thanks, if you want something a little more um, sort of Yahtzee-ish and fun, I think a King of New York could plays very well at two or three and is, you know, an enjoyable romp. If you want something a little more complicated, I would recommend Jaws potentially could be fun, especially as it's a semi-co-op and you could walk your parents through it. Or even Pan Am, if you want a little bit more of a meaty game that's still relatively simple to teach. Um sagrada and azul of course are classic uh you know family games um your mileage may vary a little bit on sagrada i'm not sure if uh reading pips on dice is difficult but if it, if it is sagrada wouldn't work but azul i think is pretty legible for someone who, who's potentially uh partially deaf and without great eyesight um that could work
1: i mean you mentioned lost cities that's a really good place to start. I would say, especially like that's part of the cosmos lines and cosmos are all about simple two player little box games.
0: Yeah.
1: No, thanks. Are, no, thanks is a really fun little simple game. Yeah. And then remember Uvo Rosenberg, if you're ready for the level after that has kind of taken all of his games and made a simpler two ver- yeah, two-player version of all of them. Well, but like there's a, uh, all creatures big and small, which is his version mm-hmm. of curricula. He's got in, some Port. I think is
0: his, Mm-hmm. is is the, that one for the I would yeah.
1: start with those but like that would be step no. two after Lost Cities
0: totally well thank you for your message Elizabeth let us know how it goes and if uh, if you ended up playing any of those if you enjoyed them we'd love to hear Next is from Dylan Balestra. Hi, Matt and gang. I am a new listener and board game lover and found your podcast really interesting and fun to listen to. Up until last year, I hadn't realized the vastness of board games beyond things like Trivial Pursuit and Parcheesi. But about a year ago, I found the game Betrayal at House on the Hill and after a couple of plays with friends fell deep down the rabbit hole. Since then, I have become a sort of entry point for my friends who have also shown some enthusiasm to look more into board game world. The group is pretty varying, but I'd say based on listening to your podcast that we fit in the lighter types of games. So far, we've had a lot of success with things like code names Red Dragon Inn, Quacks of Quedlinburg and probably our heaviest game being Betrayal on House and the Hill. I want to start exploring more medium and heavy games because I think I would enjoy some more complex mechanics, but I am afraid due to my lack of knowledge that I will pick something too heavy for my group and turn them off of the idea of larger games. Are any games you'd recommend me approaching my group with that are closer in the one to two hour range that could help ease them into more depth strategies, in-depth strategies? Really looking forward to growing my newest passion for gaming with you all. Thanks, Dylan. If only we had reviewed a game today that I would recommend. Hmm. Is that too, is
1: is that a bridge too far though? I'm like, I don't know. I I, I, would be good. I I think an intermediate step, like I, he doesn't mention Catan, like, like that is not a bad first step. And like the one that I found is really great for when, when you want to find out where people are, like what they're ready for to me, ticket to ride is that game because like you can play ticket to ride with your nine year old niece And she will have fun. She's not going to win, but she's going to put her sets of trains together. She's going to have a presence on the board. She's going to link things. She's going to feel like she's making progress and she's going to be doing things and will have a good time even if they don't win. And like, so that's like to me, that's the best, you know, intermediate starter type of game for people that are moving away from the stuff that you would have gotten at, uh, you know, Kmart 20 years ago.
0: So Dylan, I th- I think the best way, and that's a great that's a great recommendation. I-, I think the best way to look at this is to pick some of the biggest board game mechanics and find the right entry point for each one. I, I think you're trying to teach your group a language. I would teach them like Trey just suggested, route building. I would teach them uh, worker placement. For that, I would start with either Stone Age or uh, Architects of the West Kingdom. Um, I would then teach them deck building. Uh, you've already played Quacks of Kledelberg, so you're close there. I, I enjoy Taverns of Tybenthal a lot. You can't go wrong with Dominion, the classic. You know, I, I would sort of go through the big mechanics area majority. El Grande can be taught to anybody and is a fantastic, fun, simple game. Um, I would sort of pick the basic mechanics of modern Euro board games and find the entry point for there. And I think I've given you a couple to start with there. Any? Am I, do you think I'm missing any big ones there, Trey? No, I think that's
1: good. I mean, um, taverns, is, given what they've played already, that's going to feel real familiar to them. Yeah. Even if it's kind of if it's of a, a leap mechanically, it's definitely a, if they've been playing Red Dragon Inn and Quacks, then that's going to feel consistent with what they already like.
0: And it sounds you guys, you guys also like thematic storytelling games. I know it's impossible to get a copy of, but if you could track down Battlestar Galactica, I think you guys would have a blast with that too. Yeah. Good luck finding that. Um, yeah. Good luck. Um, all right. Those are our two. Well, thank you so much, Trey. This is really fun. I it's, it's always fun to go back to like a top 10 game that we haven't reviewed and just the, Now it. all yeah. I want to do is play Concordia. <laughs> like nothing else feels as good as Concordia after replaying such a beautiful game. Well, well um, it's a game that lends itself to being replayed. Right. I mean, I think, Oh
1: yeah. Ben's probably the guy who's played at the most of our group. And I, I, I pretty confident
0: he's at like 50 plays. Yeah, we're probably I'm I'm at least at 30 or so over the 10 years. Yeah.
1: And you think like there's it's not like like there's plenty of games that I've purchased and played where like if I get five plays out of a game, I feel like that's value already. So something that you can actually play 50 times and you're still got something to get out of it, that that's a classic then.
0: And they keep it alive because're they're, they're, you know every couple of years they release some new maps. Every time I play it, I go to Amazon and be like, "Oh, maybe I need to buy this map." you know so it's, it's you know and, and once you bought the base game, the, you can you know the maps are 20 bucks each, and you get two of them and they're usually they, they, they do some cool age of steamy things where they break the rules in some areas and they, you know they get different enough to play so yeah that's a the model
1: right It's kind of the age of steam map model where you know you played it a lot now, now you're ready for this crazy map that's going to have one rule that's different. And that's going to, you know, make you rethink all of your normal assumptions about the game.
0: Exactly. Um, awesome. Anything you want to plug before we go, Trey? Anything upcoming you want anyone to know about? Nope. Alrighty. Well. You've been listening to Game Brain, produced and edited by Matthew Robinson and Tom Donnelly. Special thanks to Daedalus for our incredible music. You might know him as Alfred on the show. Happy birthday, by the way, Alfred. More on Daedalus at GameBrainPod.com. You can reach us by email at contact at GameBrainPod.com. On Twitter at GameBrain underscore pod. Instagram is at GameBrainPod. Thanks for listening. And go play some games with friends online or virtually make some friends with games. Have a great week, everybody.